Welcome to Sentient Planet. The natural world is looking back at us. It is wondering what we're going to do. What are we going to do with this moment, this extraordinary moment we have created? To see crisis as almost fortunate because we cannot go on as we have been going on. We simply can't. We have exhausted the tolerance of the earth. There's no more give. Hi, thanks for joining. I'm Susan Woodward. What is sentience? We're many episodes into our podcast now, and this is still not a simple question to answer. More something to show than tell, perhaps, and hopefully something you can feel through the stories of the animals and guests we're bringing to you. If we are to ask the question directly, however, perhaps a good place to start is with a great teacher. For this episode, it's my honour to welcome and share the earth wisdom of the joyful Dr. Susan Murphy. Susan is a Roshi, a learned teacher in the tradition of Zen Buddhism, formally following in the footsteps of her own teacher, John Tarrant, who is the founder and director of the Pacific Zen Institute on the West Coast, USA. Roshi Susan is the founding and resident teacher of the Zen Open Circle in Sydney. As a writer, radio producer and film director, she's considered one of the most important global voices in the ecological Buddhism movement. Susan is the author of the splendid book, Minding the Earth, Mending the World, which is a Zen response to the great crisis of our time, climate change. It's through this book that I found Susan, who, I'm delighted to say, has been my Zen teacher for the past two years. What follows is a very open and generous sharing about sentience, our kinship relationship with non-human animals and everything else in the cosmos, and the impossibility of separating our human existence and experience from that of the earth. Please enjoy. Roshi, Susan Murphy, I'm bowing to you and thanking you so much for joining us on Sentient Planet today. Well, what a wonderful place to be on a sentient planet. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, and it still is. So let's start with that very small question. (laughs) From a Zen perspective, Susan, how does one define sentience? That's a vast question from one point of view. From another point of view, it's very simple because Jajo made it extreme. Jajo is a 8th century, 9th century Zen master, an extraordinary being, who simply said, it's alive in response to a very deep question about this matter, and that it doesn't leave anything out. So we could spend quite a lot of time sort of humming and hawing about how far we are out from under the influence or the pressure or the dead objectifying hand of Descartes, who wanted to assert that creatures have no sentience, no significant sentience. And then After that, there's been such a long kind of stream of kind of either or choices, you know, do animals, do plants, are they or are they not sentient? Um, Do they have or not have consciousness? 
There's talk about whether sponges have consciousness, viruses, <laughs> which we're so familiar with right now, slime molds, corals. I mean, this, is, this becomes a kind of infinite filleting and dividing of one living tissue of reality. When Jojo said it's alive, he's not leaving anything out of that it. Not the earth, not the cosmos, not consciousness, not you, not me. And no being is left out of that. So that's a really powerful statement of response, responsibility, mutuality, all sorts of things come with that. And one of the things that gathers up is the kind of astonishing fact that this reality, first of all, exists. That's amazing when we stop to think about it. It, it is. It didn't have to be, and it is. Mm. And then this material matter became animated, became alive, and that aliveness became conscious, became sentient, has consciousness. So that's actually sort of like reality is alive as alive as consciousness is alive. They cannot be taken apart. So there's no question from a Zen perspective that in a sense all things around us are sentient. The question, it, the answer is a given as a foundational place to start one's practice. It is. And I can talk a little more about that if you like. The sense of the mind that divides and cuts things out in an either-or way is exactly what subsides, softens, falls away with Zen practice. If you think about the divided mind, let's go to what's happening at the moment. The Taliban, there's divided mind. And of course, that kind of virulent, malignant patriarchy of, of the Taliban, that kind of horrible cut into the tissue of living human relationship. But it's also reflected, it's almost mirror image in the kind of post-Trumpian America and its very disordered mind, very divided mind, mind of either or. When you take the either or away, you're left with something else, which is both and. So you might say that the light falling upon your hand is not alive in the way that your hand is alive. But is that true? Can you not say the hand, the light, both hand are present? There's a place where the otherness of everything falls away. When Jajo says it's alive, he's talking about the seamlessness of reality. And our consciousness, this is not actually confined, this kind of mind that I'm giving here now is not confined to Eastern thought either. William James, for example, sort of one of the fathers of Western psychology, he proposed that consciousness in a, at a certain level is all that there is anywhere, ever. And what we call waking up or realization is simply the filter of consciousness falling away. So we manage ordinary life with a filtered consciousness. When that drops away, there's no boundary and there's no me inside here looking at you outside there. There is no outside. So from that point of view, to speak about aliveness and to speak about sentience, the old mind of the, of the Zen masters 
couldn't find an end to sentience. Mm. Mountains and rivers and the great white earth, alive, alive. So I guess when we try to divide this up, it quickly becomes deadly. I'm reminded of one of the um, old Repa River indigenous teachers who looked upon uh, a kind of earth-moving operation and a machine was tearing at the earth. And he, he said, that's willow. And he was asked, what does willow mean? He said, it's tearing us. Mm. Tearing us. <laughs> you know, no, no barrier there. No, no me here and the earth there. It is us. Interesting um, visual there about the machinery, um, something that's just coming up for me as I hear you talk about that. One of my personal earliest memories from childhood, and I'm thinking I must have been a toddler, 18 months, two years old, is mm-hmm. um, standing next to some huge piece of earth-moving machinery, yellow in colour, I can remember just this massive wheel that was bigger than I was. And I can't remember much more than that except being overwhelmed with a sensation of something odd and broken and wrong about the thing that I was standing beside. And it honestly is, is such an early memory. So something for me as a small female child standing next to earth-moving machinery, it, it had some profound effect, I think, on oh, my yeah. psyche that I've carried forward into my life, oh. a life that's been full of concern for what we're doing to the earth. Yeah. How interesting is that? And also, when you think about it, that great earth-yellow, earth-moving piece of equipment was othering the earth. Mm. It, was, it was stating so plainly that this is a sense of, an operational otherness <laughs> that is going on here. The Yolnu people, they're the people of Northern Territory, the fringe of the Arafura Sea, the people up there. They have what they call the orders of aliveness, and this is how they distinguish them. They say, first of all, there's those things that are moving and that cause an effect, and they can move and cause effect. That doesn't leave out the rain falling or doesn't leave out fire or earth or wind. All of these are seen as alive. The eruption of mountains, you know, the pushing up of mountains, the eroding of mountains, all of the aliveness of that kind is one order of aliveness. The second order is animals and plants, animals and bushes and trees and grasses and And the third is human beings, humans only. And some people look at that and say, why are they being placed above everything else? That's the immediate question that comes to mind. (laughs) (laughs) The old Western problem of, you know, we are in charge of everything. And and let's undo that assumption. Well, the all new say that is simply because we have law, the law with a capital L. And that that law actually places us under deep obligation of mutuality. But more than that, because we have an obligation to the law, they also say what comes with that is the power to forgive. They're confining that in a way to human beings, and that opens up a whole kind of moral order 
of being, ethical order of being. Because if you if you have the power to forgive, you obviously have the power to do harm, mm. to do wrong, to trespass in a sense. So this is defining something like a custodial species that is nevertheless deeply humble. The strongest law is the power to forgive. So something that comes up for me as I hear you talk about that, Susan, when you look at the extent of our long Earth history, you know, three, four, four and a half billion years, for the vast amount of that, human beings, we, we weren't here and things continued in their forms of quite sentience well. quite well. <laughs> so <laughs> does the Earth need a caretaker species? I think once we have the power to do such harm, we have such instrumental power upon the earth, then yes, if we don't usher in the, the whole ethos of care, what have we got? Well, we've got what we've got now. What we've got now is so remote from the sense of all my relations. If we're going to be a custodial species, we have to look really carefully at this question of love of the earth, care of the earth. Mm. And not as sort of standing above looking down upon it, but embedded within it. That whole sense of country that comes out of Yonu culture, for example. Country with a capital C, not a country. Doesn't have uh, postcodes or boundaries. Country or... in the unique way that we Aussies understand country, exactly. that connection with the spirit of place. Yeah, connection with the spirit of place, constant conversation with the spirit of place, constant informing by the spirit of mm -hmm. place, immersion in it. It's probably the longest continuous human habitat relationship unbroken on the earth. It's deeply informed by the place where we are. Yeah, and you can feel it when you are there. You can. You really can feel it in a way that I haven't felt that in anywhere else on the earth that I've been to. I mean, I'm sure it exists, but there is something unique. Ancient is the word that often comes to mind, especially in the red centre of Australia. Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the red earth, the red earth, I know. What this leads to is kinship relationships in all, extending equally in all directions. Kinship, kindness, kin, you know, that whole cluster of words. That's at the heart of country the sense of country. And mountains and rivers are kin as well, exactly where I started off here. You can't say a river is not alive. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> Even when it goes underground, as it does sometimes in Australia, and run underground instead, you know, just consult a single red river gum and you'll know whether or not the river is alive because there it is, yeah. banning huge and Huge announcement of, yes, there is water here. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, and yet, there are so many of we humans who don't see or feel that aliveness, that have lost that connection. Yeah. Well, that is our deep, immature shame, I think. There's a sense that we haven't matured as a species yet. We've only been around 100,000 years in this so-called sapient, sapient form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Extra wise form. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's, you know, the understanding that emerges from a long, deep, 
feeling into, and that can happen with a Zen practice as well, believe me. You sit on the earth, you sit with the earth, you wake up on the earth, the earth wakes you. This is so mutual. And what comes so apparent in the sense of country and I think in at the deepest level in the sense of Dharma as well, the Zen Dharma, is I am here so you can be here and you are here so I can be here in all directions. Open your eyes and look. Everything is saying, I can be here so you can be here. And we are saying with our senses, I can be here so you can be here. You know, it is so mutual. You know, there's a a group over here that I'm involved with online and this dude wanted to debate me about how bad the lack of snow and ice on Mount Rainier or Tahoma is this year. I've been living here for 25 years, he says, and it looks like this every summer. Well, it doesn't look like this every summer because I've been here for 25 years as well. So it becomes this thing about opinion, right? My only answer for him can be, I have eyes to see and so do you. Mm. The virulent, good word for the moment, the virulent strength of opinion is always masking fear and denial. Most opinion is a defense against fear, I think, I feel. I see in what is, you know, swirling around our heads about the virus, about the IPCC report, about the frightening sense, the appropriately frightening sense of what is coming towards us in terms of a very strong lesson from the natural world. Mm from the settings of climate, from the way the earth is and how we are or not, are not living in the terms of the earth, within the terms and towards the terms of the earth. To say that it's always like this, you hear people endlessly saying that still, even after the extraordinary summer of 2019-20 in Australia with half the East Coast completely incinerated and as everybody by now knows, you know, two to three billion creatures incinerated with it and 33 human beings. Even with that, there will be still people who say, oh, I've seen it as hot as this before. Oh, I've seen a drought as deep as this before. Oh, there's always no snow on Mount Rainier. Oh, there's always been climate change. Well, there's never been climate change at the speed of light, which is how it's happening right now, right. ever. Far beyond the speed of adaptation. And induced directly by our human presence and the burning of fossil fuels. So plainly, so clearly. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defence and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. In your book, Minding the Earth, Mending the World, Susan, 
you know, the premise of the book seems to be that, yes, we're in crisis, but within this crisis there is opportunity. And that through engaged Buddhism, there may be, I don't know if I would dare to say a way out, but perhaps a path to something more sane. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Well, crisis is always a kind of disclosure, a sudden disclosure of what is really going on, what has been going on, how it's going on, and what its consequences look like being. Even if that's unfolding in more slow motion or sort of when you're in the thick of it, as we are with the current pandemic, that particular crisis, which of course is not unrelated to the climate crisis and to the population crisis and to the pushing of human presence into places that are the preserve of other beings. Other beings and a much more settled ecology that we're going to utterly disrupt by our presence, by our intrusive presence. You know, we can walk there quietly, but we can't move in and bulldoze and grab creatures and breed them up and sell them to each other and regard non-human creatures as as some kind of material for our use is astonishing. Mm. The flip side of it is actually that, you know, it has occurred in the evolution of a sense of earth law, law in which the rights of the earth exist as a being, as a presence, or the rights of a river, or the rights of a, a forest, and so on. The professor Oliver Hope of Tulane University Law School, he recounted this interesting moment where it finally occurred to him, it's so strange that it had to occur to him this way, he said that he had a eureka moment. He was watching a flight of whistling ducks. It was over the Mississippi levee in New Orleans, and he said he realized that they were there for themselves. It just struck him, they are there for themselves. What child doesn't know this already, but how are able adults so removed and remote from that simple, direct, beautiful fact? They're there for themselves and they have a right to be there. Right. <laughs> Could I throw in another anecdote to see if this even makes potentially clearer what you're talking about there, Carl Safina in his book talks about an encounter with a wolf and the sense that people have as human beings when they have an encounter with a wolf is frequently that the wolf looks right through them and how surprised humans often are that there's no acknowledgement (laughs) of the human's existence and how difficult that is for people to get their heads around. But also, what a moment of grace it is when you do exchange a deep look with a wild animal. Mm. When they see you, you see them. That is just stunning. Sometimes it's also very, not intimidating so much as it puts you in your place. It's forensic, direct, implacable, (laughs) and beautiful, you know, but it is gracing you with that exchange, it can happen with your own family dog as well. And what is our place that we're being put in in that moment, do you think? Well, I can remember a beautiful story. I used it in a radio program I made about how the animals make us human. It went like this. A man was actually on a snowmobile in Canada and he was pursuing, just for the fun of it, a wolverine. And the wolverine was bounding over the 
mounds of snow, always keeping a good distance away from the snowmobile. And then the wolverine turned around and ran towards the snowmobile. And I think it even flipped it over. That is the, the astonishment of the man swerving to avoid and, and to perhaps escape the wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> he managed to flip the snowmobile and he's sitting in the snow and the wolverine came up and really looked right into him. And he said something like, you know, it felt very appropriate to receive that look. And then the wolverine turned and just had enough of this and went about his business, bounded away again. But it gave that man a good looking into on his ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) And responded in a sense with an indifference, it almost sounds like. Like, hmm, okay, so that's that. (laughs) A good Zen Buddhist would call it equanimity. Ah. (laughs) This indifference, yeah, not judging. At a certain level, not judging, just simply making sure that we know that the natural world is looking back at us. Mm. It is looking back. It is wondering, you know, what we're going to do. What are we going to do with this moment, this extraordinary moment we have created? So we find ourselves, Susan, in this paradoxical, even ridiculous situation now of having to defend the earth from ourselves. Yes. How can the practice of Zen Buddhism prepare us? And when I say us, I guess um, I'm talking about advocates, activists, lovers of the earth, which would be great if that included all of us at some point, and give us the tools and spiritual Mm. strength that we need to defend the earth from ourselves in this time? Well, Robert Huss, the poet, American poet Robert Huss, once said, we are the only protectors and we are what needs protecting in this crisis and we are what it needs protecting from. So as you point out, all of those apply, including the last one, which is the wolverine looking back at us and saying, what are you going to do here? So... That is actually, in a way, a laying out of three sets of action, of ways of moving. We are the only protectors. How will we conduct that act of protecting? We are the ones who need protecting. How will we begin to take care of the very fact that climate crisis has the potential to be another kind of pandemic of even greater inequality and suffering? How do we take care of each other? and of the each other that extends out, radiates out into all of the natural world, if we have begun to notice what a Zen practice asks us to notice, which is that this self is a question. It's like a koan, something along the lines of what is this self? Dogen said to study the way is to study the self, and to study the self is to forget the self. In other words, to find the self becoming transparent to all that is and available, reachable by all that is. Instead of going out naming and discerning and separating and either and othering the rest of everything that is around us, allowing this myriad of extraordinary forms and, and moments to approach and realize us. We're not doing all the doing anymore. We are being, completely being, in that state of deep meditation. And that state of deep meditation has to get up and walk around and and take care of things. It doesn't just sit in 
splendid isolation and tranquility. It's busy. It has a lot to do. Amen. And the third part. <laughs> luckily, luckily, it's a joy to be. The quietest joy of all is feeling this sense of self-dissolving and the sense of my body no longer being the limit of my being. All that is here begins to feel like me, my body, me, in the deepest, most personal and intimate, but also most humble sense, you know. So the last part of Robert Hess, you know, and we are what it needs to be protected from. That sense of self that is as wide as that is already intrinsically, innately, deeply committed to protecting. It is no longer in that oppositional form. It is strengthened by a sense of deep belonging. The alienation of the human being is visible in all directions on mm-hmm. our earth right now. We are alienated from our extraordinary matrix of life here, the earth. Alienated from our home. Alienated from our homes, yeah, not at home on the earth. So the sense of needing to protect ourselves, what it becomes then is protecting or subduing ourselves towards the impulses that would not be taking care, would not be alive to this aliveness, would be dead. There's a lot of sense of human beings are the most unliving creatures on the earth in some ways, yeah. not fully living. Yun Men, 11th century Zen master, what he said was, the whole earth is medicine. In other words, the whole earth is healing. It it is endlessly healing any gap that we may form, create any kind of way we might split ourselves off. What an incredible generosity. It is, totally. And the question of what is this self grows out of, endlessly grows out of, that healing relationship with the earth. To see crisis as almost fortunate because we cannot go on as we have been going on. We simply can't. Mm -hmm. The tolerance, tolerance in the, the sense of engineering, you know, we have exhausted the tolerance of the earth. There's no more give. Joanna Macy, I think, is the one who called it an exquisite moment to be alive. Exquisite actually means sharp, you know, and painful, but also very beautiful. We've been called into being at this moment. It's ours. It's our moment to be with and to respond within and to move with skillfully and lovingly. That whole we're the ones we've been waiting for phrase that we hear. That one too. I like what you said there about the need, I guess, the necessity to subdue our more destructive tendencies. And Zen Buddhism being a path to that potentiality. 
or from the ground of this utterly shared sense of being, you know, a being that is not other than me and I'm not other than what is around me, that's already a healing of that fundamental fault line that allows human beings to, with enormous malignant indifference, to be wrecking the joint. Can you help folks understand some of that psychological othering that is actually a necessary precursor to those destructive tendencies of our species? I don't know that everybody understands othering. It has a psychological meaning, of course, but I think it comes back to that, what I was saying at the beginning. If you divide reality up, And of course, we have to make distinctions to be able to move skillfully in the world as well. We have to know that that light is a red light and not a green light at this moment, for example. The whole point is not either or, but both and. We have to allow the earth almost not so much to re-educate us as I think almost to initiate us into this greater fullness of being, greater fullness of presence. We're called human beings, but We're nothing but human doings almost all the time. Mm. So that ability to be, to be with difference without it being in oppositional form. Difference is not opposition. Difference can be held in the mind of both and. I mean, that's the real meaning of equanimity. It can hold both without preferencing to preference men over women, for example, humans over nature, as if, as if we can step outside nature. Are you talking there about an embracing of the diverse reality that we live in? Is it, yes. is it just, this is how it is, it's very diverse? Yes. If you don't want to include it all, then please try throwing something that you don't like out of the universe. And when you succeed, let me know about it. I mean, that desire to exclude, look how it's ruining so many things right now. Look how it's dividing people yeah, and befuddling people, deranging people. I mean, if you want to see climate change as a mirror, then it's the mirror in which we see our own derangement so clearly. That interplay between grief and love, Susan, can we expand on how that's going to if we can go there as a species, how we might be able to repair our broken relationship with the earth. First of all, I think an essential step is for people to admit the grief. Until then, it's just fear and rage. If you admit the grief, you are admitting to impermanence, you are admitting to mortality, you are admitting to the fact that we all suffer and and that this is actually a point of interbeing, you know. Suffering is the very medium of our interbeing in a a certain way. We could recognise that other beings suffer. And if I could just add to that, we may perhaps also find that, try as we may not to, we really do care. Well, I think if you can find your way down to the grief and be helped to find your way past the fear to the grief, then you discover um, how fiercely you love what it is that you fear to lose, how deeply you love it. And 
love is, in a sense, it is that very state of there is no outside to this. There's a seamlessness to love. We talk about interconnectedness. <laughs> this flow that is going on between you and even the walls of the room you're sitting in right now. The sense of one seamless tissue of reality. I can't, I can't see any way not to call that love. From a human point of view, it's the ultimate verifying of something you might call love. Or if you want to work out what love is, you know, English has only one word for it. But everybody knows what it means when you touch into it, when you have that sense of I, whatever this I is, this extraordinary beingness of my, of what I call myself, am a complete fit with where I am. You know, I would point out that if you manage to sit and be wherever you like, it doesn't have to be on a, in a meditation hall or on a meditation cushion, you can do it on a hillside, that's fine. And just to come to as complete stillness as you can find, if your body, heart, mind just become still and let that sense of it's out there soften and drop away. Children can be encouraged to do that. They take to it like ducks to water, by the way. I've taught little kids meditation. <laughs> the best. They're so tuned in so readily to this, this invitation, you know. The whole of what's here is this great invitation. Be here. They're not as altered and um, reconditioned as we adults. Yeah. <laughs> I am this. I am that tree. I am, you know. That I am doesn't have limits. Children know that in their bones. In the meantime, if adults can do this, adults can find their way back to that kind of wholeness of being. And that's often the feeling of a really deep meditation retreat. You find yourself back in the state of wonder of a seven-year-old child, but with an adult seriousness of heart, mind, purpose, sorrow, grief, alongside that. It's a beautiful thing. What a great invitation. Why would you not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say, though, that the more that you permit yourself to be fully present, the more it opens, and the more moments where you find it opening will occur throughout your day. You'll see that it never stops opening. Just that you can perceive it. Just have to be there for it. I've heard you say multiple times, actually, in your teachings, um, something like this. As always, it's too early for despair. <laughs> So from where I sit, Susan, <laughs> things look awfully bleak. Yeah. Why is it too early for despair? Well, the interesting thing is I probably actually said it is always too early for despair. Okay. I'm sorry. I misquoted you. <laughs> no, no, no. That's fine. But you see, that, you see that there is a slight difference there. It is always too early for despair. It's probably always too late for despair. Despair is, a, you know, it's an inhibition of being. It is actually saying at a certain level that there's no way to cope with this, you know, there's no way to save the earth. That's really what the despair that I think is running through many human beings right now is saying. It's hopeless, yeah. Well, there's a beautiful Buddhist peace fellowship, the idea of engaged Buddhism, which always makes me smile because what Buddhism is not engaged? If it's not engaged... What is it? Why bother? 
Anyway, so there was a t-shirt and the slogan on the t-shirt, I actually don't know its source, but the maxim or slogan was, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. So let's turn that around to, you know, there is no way to save the earth. Saving the earth is the way. The way that matures us, that opens us, that initiates us, that blesses us, that that is the only way that we can requite the blessing of being here on this earth. It is not a single solution, it has 10 trillion, trillion moments. Each moment opens another moment, each step opens another step. And each one of us has no choice if we're alive but to be looking for what is the step I can take now? What's the step we can take now? Even saying that, I'm reminded of the moment when Uncle Max Harrison, Dula Munmun, a lovely, dear Indigenous teacher, we were with a whole group of people from Australians for Native Title and Reconciliation, very deeply well-meaning people. At a certain moment, he stopped, turned round to everybody and said, you know, I don't hold with this word reconciliation. Everyone was startled and a little bit frightened, I think. I said, how can you talk about reconciliation when there has been no relationship? Hmm. So everybody took that in. <laughs> and it's immediately apparent, so apparent when you say there is no relationship here yet to reconcile. And then he picked up a handful of earth and he held it out to everybody. He said, I tell both mobs, all mobs, everybody, all mobs. <laughs> mobs is an indigenous word for all of us. He says, I tell both mobs, meaning black fellows, white fellows, reconcile with this. That's another beautiful way of saying there is no way to save the earth. Saving the earth is the way. There is no way to reconcile this. Reconciling this is the way. I would be remiss, Susan, if I didn't, um, as we're starting to wrap this up, perhaps, like to check in on the state of recovery in Australia since the Black Summer climate fires of 2019-2020. And I guess I wanted to check in on how you're perceiving um, recovery both for our animal kin and in the hearts and psychology of the Australian people. It's actually hard to read right at this moment, how far it's reaching in still to the hearts and minds of the Australian people. It certainly had an extraordinary wave of powerful feeling when it gathered over five months into what it finally became. And what it finally became here was this incredibly wide fire front, you know, 30 kilometres wide fire front, moving steadily day by day towards us. You know, we spent weeks preparing the house as best we could and, and the ground and the land. And then the, just before we left, I carried out the little ritual of one of my Aboriginal Indigenous teachers, Annie Maureen, who taught me to go sit on the earth, find out where the earth wants you to sit down, sit down there, and just ease your fingertips into the earth. 
and greet your mother. Say, hello, mother. This is your daughter, Susan, speaking with you. And wait to hear the reply of the earth, the reply that comes back through your fingers, through your body, through your mind and heart. And what came back to me was, your suffering with me is my care for you. It just came, that came fully formed, it's almost through my fingertips, you know, your suffering with me. I was feeling the devouring of those forests and those creatures and those creek lines and, and people and houses and lives in all directions for so long. And now it was upon us and of course, you know, we breathed smoke and the incinerated bodies of creatures for the last three months. It's just a pall of incinerated life. And of course we suffered that. But when I could feel that sense of to suffer with this, with the earth, is to begin to feel possibility of how we are being cared for by the earth. That suffering is the alive fact. That suffering is recognition, has recognition power. Mm. It has revelation in it. That summer was full of revelation including the loving response of people towards each other in the face of that fire threat and the loving response of people towards the creatures, how much immediately what sprang up in our area was a a place where you could bring fruit and vegetables. People made sort of wire wreaths, putting the food onto wire rings and taking them out along with baby baths full of water for the creatures in the burnt lands, the incinerated lands. And this sense of loving, responsive care just woke up so strongly in everybody in the face of this completely inarguable reality. What happened is very interesting because the New Year's Eve of 2019, well, that was the day that you know we faced the biggest threat of all. That was also, it turns out, the day in which the pandemic was formally recognised by the World Health Organisation. Oh, wow. Mm. And so, you know, what followed on from fire was flooding rain, destructive flooding rain, and then folding straight out of that was pandemic. And I would say that the pandemic has not suffocated um, that responsiveness or that awareness, but it has certainly place something else in the foreground for now. And I'm sad to see that sense of the immediacy receding. Of course, it's not receding in other parts of the of the world, in your part of the world. Oh, the whole, the whole earth is burning. I, South America, yeah. Africa, things that make what's happening on the west coast of the United States look actually quite insignificant. Well, Susan... I feel as though what wakes up in that kind of deep sense of sorrow, because so many people spoke of sorrow and requiem, that leaves its imprint. And I don't think Australians can ever look exactly the same way with exactly the same careless. How good is this? Oh, so warm in the middle of winter. How good is this? (laughs) (laughs) That blissful ignorance. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think people now feel the urging of, well, how good is this? Is this the good manifesting here, to have the warmest winter on record? Yeah. No, that's not a good sign. But I'm hopeful that that deep grief has left a genuine mark. 
I've gone out to a particular area that I you know, went out to examine closely in about two weeks after, and then three weeks, and then a few months after, and so on, watching that recovery happening gradually. First of all, there was you know, the epicormic growth unnaturally happening right at the base of trees, so close to the incinerated earth. Then there was the strange sort of poodle growth. You know, the trees look poodled. <laughs> We're laughing, but that sounded like a sort of visual sort of shriek almost, you know. Mm. This hurts, this hurts. And the other striking thing was no insects and no birds mm. in those really deeply burnt areas. They are coming back. They come back. The earth rebounds. Yeah, with or without us, it rebounds and will rebound and... Everybody knows how much the Black Plague in Europe let the forests re-establish, let wild animals rebound, you know. Perhaps we're at another <laughs> such point. <laughs> Who knows? It doesn't seem like the virus is done with us yet. No, no. I love that saying that Mother Nature has sent us all to our rooms to have a good thing. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I like what you said there about the outcry of so many Australian people about the massive loss of mm. life and the suffering, right, of billions and billions of mammals, reptiles, insects, birds. I can't think of yeah. another time I used to get quite frustrated because there'd be these big bushfires in Australia. I mean, it's a very bushfire-prone place, nothing like what you guys just experienced. And the fires here on the West Coast and I would look for news reports or concern or interviews with people who gave a hoot about what might be happening to the wildlife as opposed to just human property. And I never really saw it until this great awakening that seemed to happen with the Australian situation. That was the first time I'd really noticed it. Oh. Deeply, deeply painful for all of us. And perhaps what you're describing there, going back to what that Aboriginal elder was trying to convey by holding up the earth and saying reconcile with this perhaps through those fires the earth is reaching out to us and saying this relationship does exist wake up mm. well let's let's try to imagine those little almost impossible shoots of green that come up out of the earth you know and round the base of trees and so on their presentation of perhaps of this shifted consciousness, at least shifted, off its sort of comfortable place. We're not sitting as comfortably with the sense of the warming of the earth as we were before that terrible fire season. And before the whole earth got to breathe those incinerated creatures in the end, that smoke cloud travelled several times around the earth. Mm. What about you, Susan? What are you up to these days? What are you secretly working on over there? Well, not so secretly as it happens. <laughs> <clears throat> well, the book I'm writing is very close to what we've been talking about, of course. The title is A Fire Runs Through All Things. I'm not sure what the subtitle is going to be yet. Shambhala and I are still having talks about that. But it is about the deep kind of koan nature of crisis itself and the value of crisis in a world like ours. 
I'm delighted that Shambhala is publishing this because they, they're a lovely press that really put books out into the world. They put a lot of energy into the arrival of the book, into actual human hands, and that's lovely. But it's more or less asking, is this the interruption that we deeply, deeply need? And what will we do? How will we resolve this koan? Rather than solve this problem, how will we re resolve this crisis as the crisis of what is this self? How does it relate? How is it finding its home on the earth or not? So you are still walking with that, and I wish you all the best with your uh, personal writing journey there. And um, you. I know you're going to bring thank something you. really, really valuable out into the world. So thank you very much for everything you're doing. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's the only thing there is to do. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, again, a great pleasure, Susan. Susan Murphy's new book, A Fire Runs Through All Things, will be published in the spring of 2023. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening. <laughs>